golf and rock and roll. Not logical, but it is fascinating. Playing down that big old fairway. Don't want no hackers to get in my way. The boys and me got a big NASA going. It's the Golf Insiders, giving you the inside scoop on all things golf. Now, here are your Golf Insiders on FM 96.9 The Game. Hey, bring me another bucket of balls. We love it. And turn on the lights. I love to play. Because I love it. We love it. Oh, Orlando, you're listening to the Golf Insiders, taking you home on the fairways of I-4. In the house, Holly G, back from Shinnecock Hills, beautiful Long Island, and a U.S. Open that will go down in history as Brooks Kepka becomes the seventh player to go back-to-back at the U.S. Open. What a fantastic finish by Brooks. And if you were listening in last week, he was one of the guys that I had on the top of my radar because he looked confident and he looked cool and he looked collected. And he said that Shinnecock reminded him of Aaron Hills. And I thought that was very telling when I heard it in his presser on Tuesday. And he just seemed to be in the zone. We've got a lot to unpack tonight and a great lineup of our golf insiders to uh, give you all their comments and observations as we had quite a, a roller coaster of a U.S. Open between some of the course conditions and the uh, interesting little uh, incident with Phil Mickelson on the 13th Green Saturday. We're going to waste no more time and go to Todd Lewis from the Golf Channel for his comments. Hey, Todd. Hi, Ali. How are you? Uh, I came back with a nice, uh, nice cold from New York, but uh, oh, that God. that media center was about fifty-five degrees most <laughs> most of the week. Yeah, and it wasn't super warm at least early in the morning and at night too when I was working, so I can relate. So uh, first, let's start with uh, the 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 breaking news. I guess that uh, this morning Phil Mickelson says he's embarrassed and disappointed and apologized <clears throat> for his moving ball incident at the U.S. Open. I know you had a, quite a you know couple of segments on on Golf Channel over the weekend about this and uh, your your thoughts. Well, I think I think it's good for him to do that. Um, it probably should have been a little earlier, um, but um, yeah, better I mean, late than not, never. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, this is not something that's going to you know be dominant in Phil's legacy, um, but this is something people are going to think about. Uh, Phil did this, and you know, he, he, I. <laughs> here's the thing about it: you don't, you wouldn't. Phil was. The, there are a couple things that bothered me about it as a golf fan and a media, uh, as a writer and a reporter. First off, he did it. He walked off the green and said, "I don't, I don't, I can't believe I just did that. I don't know what I got. Somebody just whatever." And then he had four or five holes to think about what he wanted to say to the media, and he was very confident saying that you know i've been waiting to do this i've 
thought about doing this for a long time. I wanted to take the two-shot penalty. So, you know, there's just, just, just no clear black and white as to whether or not he knew what the penalty was, what it was, what he was doing. And I think that the weirdest thing after that for me was that Phil said, hey, if, if there are people out there that feel like I'm disrespecting the game, then they need to toughen up. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, it's fr- frankly, to be honest with you, it sounded a little hypocritical. I mean, Phil maybe should have toughened up and taken where that ball lies, ended up, and then tried to hit a shot. It, it just didn't smell good. And, you know, and, and Phil has had such a tremendous career. Um, but it's just, you know, it's just one of those things that you just, sure, it's within the rules, but let me just throw this analogy at you. In the NFL, if a team is winning 45-3 to and that team that's winning in the fourth quarter with under a minute to go decides to start throwing bombs and trying to score again, sure, it's within the rules, but it's just not in the spirit of the game. If a team in baseball is leading 10-1 to in the ninth inning and that winning team has a runner on first and that runner decides to steal second, Sure, it's within the rules, but just just does you know good quality, classy teams don't do that. So it just it just didn't look good. I mean, Tiger Woods, Jack Nicklaus, the icons of their generation, and they would never do that. And I just was really taken aback that Phil decided to do that. I, I couldn't agree more. You know, it's a Hall of Famer. It, it, you get to a certain level of the game. That's the key. Yeah, that's the key, Holly. If I can interrupt you, he's in the World Golf Hall of Fame. If they, sure, John Daly did this, Kirk Triplett did this, and I'm not discounting that they've had very solid careers, but there's a difference in their career and Phil Mickelson. And, you know, it's just weird. Now, I'm, I'm, saying, I'm not beating up on him. He did come out and apologize, and that, and that, that took courage, you know, for him to do that. Um, and hopefully, you know, with this apology, you know, we can move on and he can, you know, add to his legacy in a positive way moving forward. But, he has a different level being a member of the World Golf Hall of Fame as a multi-major champion, a guy who has 40-plus wins on the PGA Tour, um, and it just didn't look right. Yeah, it, it didn't. Um, also, you know, it's interesting. I, I uh, took a video of a, a young boy who was waiting with his flag to get some autographs off the uh, ninth green during the practice round on Wednesday, and who walked up but Brooks Kepka, And he, you know, signed the boy's... Uh, flag. And so I said to him, I said, you know, how old are you? He said, his name was Robbie. He says, I'm nine years old. This is your first U.S. Open. Yes. What do you love about golf? I just, I, you know, I love being outdoors. I, I love hitting it in the hole. Actually, he said, he said the puck because he's also a hockey player. But, you know, you see so many kids. I remember that the U.S. Open was my first, my first major championship. I was nine years old. I met Arnold Palmer. I thought I'd met Santa Claus when I met Arnold Palmer. You know, and there's so many kids out there. And I, I think that was something that, you know, really, to me, I was like, come on, Phil. You're, you're well, way bigger well, than this. I mean, right. Well, Phil, Phil is, you could make a huge argument that Phil, Phil is the Arnold Palmer of this generation. He does a lot with the fans. I always see him, no matter what the score, he generally goes out and signs autographs, even after bad rounds. I mean, even after he hit the ball on the 13th green, he went and signed autographs under all that tornadic activity surrounding what he did. Um, so he is a bit of a Pied Piper. He is, And, look, I think after a day or so he realized that. I think instead of, like, being frustrated and angry, he even said that in a statement and you know, saying what he did after it, I, I think he realizes that I am at a different level, and he is. And I'll give him credit for coming out and apologizing. It should have, maybe should have come earlier, maybe the day after. He didn't even speak to the media on Sunday. Um, 
which I found to be surprising. Um, but, you know, he did. He came out and apologized and said, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. I was frustrated. I was angry. And there you go, which tells you what the U.S. Open can do to people. Absolutely. Well, and let's let's not take away from the fact that Brooks Kepka did something amazing, winning two back-to-back U.S. Opens. He was another guy we talked about last Wednesday, Todd. You know, when uh, I, j- I just felt this guy had a, a, a focus as well as just, a, just this calmness about him, as well as confidence, but, you know, not necessarily in a cocky way, but just, you know, I'm, that he was here to win. You know, as he said on Saturday, they're going to have to take this trophy away from me. And, uh, you know, he said he was going to play conservative, that, uh, you know, bogeys were okay, and he got it done. He was seven over as he walked to the fifth tee on Friday. You know, I think that's the most important thing. He was seven over par, and he ended up winning one over. So he played the final, what, 40-some-odd holes at at six under. And let me tell you, there are a lot of guys out there, at the U.S. Open especially, when they saw themselves at seven over, early in their second round would probably saying, you know what, let me just get out of here. This this is a brutal tournament. This is a very difficult golf course. Setup's kind of dicey. I, you know, I'm just, I'm just ready to move on. I'm ready to go to Hartford, which is where he is right now. But he didn't. I think that's the biggest key that people aren't, aren't understanding. He had the guts to not only fight back to try to make the cut, but then to keep fighting to win. And I think that shows a lot. I think he... This is it. I think this is better than his Aaron Hill's victory, where he kind of ran away from it. Everyone, this is this one showed, you know, when I need to, I can reach deep down and pull something out and win. Yeah, and I think we're gonna. I think this is the breakthrough moment for him. You know, we've been talking about him all since he came back. I think this was only his eighth tournament. You know, he played great at TPC. He's been on this, you know, trend. Um, I, you know, I th- I think it's remarkable coming back from this wrist injury. Uh, but, you know, a lot of the guys, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, they were, you know, really saying the golf course was in great condition. But, you know, just as Jordan Spieth was saying, the U.S. Open is supposed to be the toughest test in golf. You know, that's that's physically as well as mentally, right? They said this tournament should have its own identity. It should be taxing mentally, frustrating, tough. You know, this is our national championship. It was actually – it's actually more mental than physical by far. And when these guys who are the best in the world are used to – shooting 67, 66, even 68 uh, when they go out and play on the PGA Tour, the regular tour event, and they come here and 75 is, is lower than the stroke average a couple of days. <laughs> you know, you got you to gotta find out what you're made of. And I, and I think that's, that's why you look at some of the past U.S. Open champions that have won on difficult golf courses, and, and you can just tell that they're just grit and guts. Well, he just stepped in. in We just stepped into the studio, and I have Dr. Bob Winters next to me, and uh, you queued it up perfectly for him to give us a comment on the mental side of the U.S. Open this year, Bob. Well, I'll tell you what, Brooks Kepka really proved to the whole world that not only is he an athletic talent, no, bar none, but he really is a gladiator warrior. And I thought it was very apropos that he and his very good bash brother. DJ, Dustin Johnson, were paired together because these two at Joey D's fitness trainer down there in southeastern Florida, if one goes 12 reps, the other will go 13 reps. You know, they just want to one-up each other. But you also understand for a long time, Brooks has been just a, a great, great competitor. He always wants to win. 
He said, I'm the most confident you know, player in the field. And I actually texted him several times during the tournament. I said, hey, no one's taking your 2017 trophy away from you. Give up the defense. Go on the offense. And that's really what he did. And I think when you talk about, you know, seven over after 15 holes, and then to come back and really have a chance to even be in red numbers, you know, that final day, uh, he, he did some really, really great stuff. So I'm very, very pleased, very happy for him. Uh, I hate, you know, that his victory was a little bit you know, overshadowed by all the media hype with Phil Mickelson. But you got to give a lot of credit to Brooks to go back to back. And one of the first people to congratulate him was Curtis Strange, who won the Opens 88 and 89. And then people asked him, they said, hey, are you uh, jealous? Are you envious? Are you sad? He goes, heck no. It takes a heck of a lot of great stuff. And we're, we're a nice group of players. So I thought it was very apropos for Curtis to be right there to say congratulations to Brooks. Todd? Oh, I, I completely agree. I, I mean, I think this this was a, a mental, uh, I, I wouldn't say a hurdle or a breakthrough, uh, but this is something, like I mentioned earlier, that's, that's going to service him moving forward as he gets in tight spots or tough situations. Um, you know, for him to now have two major championships, that's one more than his good buddy DJ has. Uh, and, and for him to win it the way he did, uh, again, with so much determination and grit and fight, I, I think, uh, you know, this, this, could, this could run him into like 15, 16 PGA Tour victories down the road and a few more major championships. And one of the things, Todd, I think that all listeners and viewers can learn from is that coming down the stretch of any tournament, whether it's your home club championship, a member guest, or you're just trying to win $5 from your buddies or girlfriends, is that it's always, you know, it's always drive for show, putt for dough, but you got to wedge it close to get it low. And he actually wedged it close several times and made those clutch five and six footers. So, Yes, he did a great job there. I agree. All right, Todd, thank you so much. We appreciate, as always, and uh, congratulations to the whole crew. I know it was a long week and great coverage wall-to-wall by our good friends at the Golf Channel. Thanks, Holly. Thanks, Dr. Bob. All right, Todd. You're listening to the Golf Insiders, 96.9 The Game. We'll be right back. We're back. The Golf Insiders in the house. Holly G, along with my special caddy tonight, Dr. Bob Winters. Hi, Holly. The mental mentalist. Well, I am your co-pilot to a unbelievable airliner to great golf information. Well, I think I caught a nice little cold on the airliner back home <laughs> Sunday. Uh, but what a week at Shinnecock. And um, I have to tell you, that... That golf course is a beast. It is stunning. It is old school. Uh, the players had nothing but great things to say about it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Um, the USGA, uh, I don't know what they were thinking. I, it took me a day to be back on that property and look at the weather forecast, and I thought, hmm, this is going to get interesting this weekend. Because the prediction was warm and sunny, and it's always windy there. Um, so, you know, with what happened on Saturday, you know, I, I, we're going to bring in one of one of our favorite golf insiders here because we know he has 
plenty of comments on what transpired Saturday and and then, of course, Sunday. And with the comments just made by Phil today, it seems that all we're talking about is is Brooks the winner, which is really important, but also Phil and uh, his hiccups. Phil the thrill now for a whole different reason. Gary Van Sickle, president of the Golf Writers Association of America and uh, lead columnist for The Morning Read. Hello, Mr. Van Sickle. How's it going, Dr. Bob and Holly? Hi, Gary. It's good to have you on the show. It's great to be had, especially by you people. So, you know, I always enjoy being had. Okay, fantastic. So, you know, what were your impressions of this year's U.S. Open, Gary? Well, it's funny because Saturday, I kept, end of the day, I kept joking with people. It's like, you know, this is why I hate the U.S. Open. Nothing ever happens on Saturday. So between the USGA losing the golf, losing the greens and a couple of severe pin positions and Phil doing what he did, losing his mind and earning the nickname from Randall Chambly, Slappy Fillmore. Ah. Um, slap, I like Slappy Fillmore. I'm, I'm, I'm adopting that. You know, it, it's a shame. You know, the, the, I just was writing something today, and it hasn't appeared yet, but the last 30 years, when, you you know, any of us have played golf, if somebody in the group happens to, like, double hit a chip, what's the first thing somebody else in the group says? You, you TC chinned it. Yeah. yeah. T, you know, you know it. You've seen it. You've, you've probably said it. I've said it. Uh, so as far as what the USGA did or didn't do to Phil, I mean, let's just forget that. That was almost faded out because, you know, you got to be 60 years old or 50 years old to remember that kind of a thing. What Phil did now, now for the next 30 years, anytime somebody hits a moving ball or, you know, they miss a putt and it's rolling by and they whack it, what are you going to say? Mickelson or Slappy Fillmore or something like that. So he is now stuck with this. I mean, he's not going to have to hear it, but the rest of us in the world are going to be saying this now when we play golf when somebody – Somebody whacks the ball after a putt, they missed a putt. And so he, he's going to have to live with that or live with the knowledge that that's now his legacy along with never winning a U.S. Open. Uh, again, the USJ spent the week swearing they were never going to let the Greens get away from him again, and that's exactly what they did on Saturday. And they claimed the weather was a lot windier than expected. But Come on, reality, USGA. <laughs> in Ria, you, could, you know, Holly knows, you look at their sheet, for the, they have a daily weather sheet. We're calling for wind like about 20 miles an hour. It's exactly what they got. So they messed up. They always tell us, and maybe you think differently, Dr. Bob, but they always say we don't care about the score. But their actions don't indicate that they, that's true. They, their actions indicate that they want par to be a good score. You know, in this day and age, that's just not a good score anymore. These guys are too good. The winning score should be 10 under unless you had crazy weather. I mean, how do you feel about that? Well, absolutely. The Saturday pin placements and also with the wind and the setup is an overreaction, again, by the USGA to Friday's good scoring, okay? So you come out Thursday, everybody, you know, has got, you know, some nerves. Everybody's playing the U.S. Open. Friday, they're a little bit more comfortable. They have a few more pins that are accessible. They have lower scores, and people go, oh, no, we don't want to have another Aaron Hills where people shoot 15, 16 under to win the tournament. And then they actually toughen it up. And then, again, the USGA loses Shinnecock, much like they did in 2004. And this is even worse. They've had years and years to correct this and rectify this situation, and they stumble again. And, and it's just 
It's just inexcusable for the USGA, and they need to really do something and really be held accountable for this really ineptitude. Yeah, you know, what bothers me is take Dustin Johnson. And I'm not saying he should have won. He could have. He had his chance. He could have won. But he got the bad end of the draw. He played Thursday afternoon and Friday morning. He had the late early time. That they got the most win Thursday. Friday morning they got wind. It was cool and it was it rained for like eight holes. The guys Thursday morning had almost nine holes of calm. Then they got the win. Friday after Friday afternoon they're playing again and they got nine holes of wind and then the wind just quit. It laid down. So they got almost 18 holes of calm. Anyways, Dustin Johnson, despite this, played through the wind. He had a four-shot lead, and he probably played with a three-shot penalty on those first two days because of the weather. And then when they lose the greens on Saturday, the guys in the morning could still sort of play, and then the guys in the afternoon got clobbered. So he got like another four-shot penalty on Saturday afternoon. Now, it made it kind of a horse race on Sunday. He had his chance, but... You know, he's he's playing, uh, you know, the odds were stacked against him. You know, and Ricky Fowler even joked, what did he shoot on Saturday, 84? He joked he, he wished he hadn't played so well Thursday and Friday, so he would, he would have been Saturday morning when those guys could shoot a good score and get position like, like Berger and Tony Finau did. So uh, they totally, you know, it's a shame. They altered the outcome of the tournament. Uh, a bunch of guys still had a chance to win on Sunday, and Kepka was a guy who played the best, but they kind of, it kind of turned into an 18-hole tournament on Sunday because uh, the guys either played themselves out of it or everybody bunched together. And uh, it's a sh- it's a shame that when you, your decisions you make on the on the course set up uh, seriously alter the outcome, and that's that's not how it should be. The players should determine the outcome and not have it be decided by uh, you know some pins that are really unputtable. Gary, this, these were Phil's comments on Monday, which I think are very interesting now, given what's happened, uh, talking about, you know, what value should be placed on protecting par. And Phil said, I think it's very difficult job to find the line of testing the best players to the greatest degree and then making it carnival golf. Interesting word he used. I think it's a very fine line. It's not a job I would want. And I know that the USGA is doing the best they can do to find that line, and a lot of times they do. And sometimes they cross over it, but it's not an easy job. It's easy for all of us to criticize. Now, then, this, I think, if you don't get a sense of how these guys, how deeply, especially this tournament, means to Phil Mickelson, he then said, the difficulty is when you dream of a championship as a child, whether it's U.S. Open or the Masters, whatever event, and you dream of winning these tournaments as a child and you work hours and hours and you fly in days and days and do all this prep work and then you are left to chance the outcome as opposed to skill, that's a problem. That's the problem that I have with it. Interesting. Uh, and, you know, and another thing left to chance is if you don't play because you decided to go to your kid's high school graduation instead, like last year. So, yeah, I think that, I think that paragraph, what you, his quote right there, that is what led up to his blowout, his meltdown when he played hockey and really, you know, violated the most basic rule of golf, uh, hitting a moving ball at the, at, in the 13th screen there. That all, uh, everything he said there fed into that. Here's his lifelong dream. Uh, take it any way you want. But I, I, I really, when I watched that, I really saw like a nine year old kid swatting the ball and having a tantrum going. I'm never going to win the U.S. Open, never. And he's just and not, and, you know, that was the adult version of it. 
Well, I think, I think, yes, Gary, I think you're exactly right. And this is indelible ink on the career of Phil Mickelson. I don't think he's ever going to actually sort of walk away from this, even with this text that went out to select sports writers today and golf writers, only to a select few to sort of cover those tracks, okay? Because he had such an outpouring, an outrage of his popular media following and I think it's taken him four to five days to come out with his apology or was it his handlers or his agent's apology we'll never know but it will always go down that Phil wanted to go into Shinnecock to put himself in the record books but he's going to come away with his name you know sort of scarred in the rule book because this will be known now as they make some type of alteration to the rule this is the Phil rule and that's, you know, really sort of a kind of an infamous sort of a rule for him to have this breakdown. And for everyone from you, you know, being the president of the Golf Writers Association of America to me, where I've worked with the best in the whole world, I've never seen anything like this. And I think Curtis Strange, two-time back-to-back Open champion, said it best. He goes, this, this is extremely embarrassing. This is, everyone's yeah. embarrassed by this. I, I'm embarrassed for him. We've never seen it, and we've never seen anything so, it's just bad. And everyone's shaking their heads and go, what happened? And it was time, I think one sports writer, I can't remember it, he says it's time you know, for the preppy to grow up, to be accountable for his actions, and say, hey, I just lost it. Rather than sitting here trying to take 20, 30 minutes in the player's locker room, trying to assemble some type of rationalization for why he did what he did. And in my world, Gary, we call that rational lies. It's a rational lie for something you're trying to cover up. So now let me ask you this. Would you have DQ'd him? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Without a doubt, because, uh, you know, you don't have to get past the first rule in the rule book. Rule rule one, two is uh, about being, you know, you're not, you cannot alter or affect or alter the course of a ball, the movement of a ball. And that comes with a DQ. Now, for some reason, under Rule 14.5, they have a rule about hitting a moving ball, which is really meant to be to cover, uh, like, the ball falling off the tee or the ball, you know, accidental hitting the ball. This was intentional hitting the ball. But they've got this weird clause in there under in 1.2 that says, well, if this rule is covered, if the incident is covered by another rule, that rule takes precedence. No, the very first rule of golf is not to alter the course of a ball, period. And that should override. So, I mean, there, if Phil, I, if some good may have come of this because that rule never comes up. I guess nobody's cared before. But the USGA needs to fix this rule to make it consistent. Uh, to me, the telling moment was when John Bodenhamer, the rules, guys, uh, the rules guy of the USGA, came in to talk to the media right afterwards to explain the ruling. And, you know, the issue is, you know, why he didn't get DQ'd. Had he stopped the ball with his putter or just deflected it, he would have been DQ'd. Hitting it while it's moving, he just gets a two-shot penalty. That, that makes no sense. That, that To me, that's even worse. But let's just go back. You know, Phil, when he, when he hit that ball, it actually hit the back of the cup and went five feet by. Suppose, he make, suppose when he hits that moving ball, suppose it goes in. Now, talk about gaining an advantage – uh, that's a blatant, blatant. Um, it's another part of the rule. If you take, if a player's deemed to have gained 
a serious competitive advantage, he has to be DQ'd. So it didn't. He didn't make it, but he came close. I, I just think, you know, to me, what I think really happened was, oh, I, did my, I didn't get my, the punchline of my story. So Bodenhamer comes in the press conference, goes through all this, and some some writers incredulous about this, and the guy goes, so, are you saying if Phil had just merely stopped the ball, he would have been disqualified? And John Bodenhamer said, I don't deal in hypotheticals. It's like, excuse me, what is the rule book? Of, it's nothing but 90 pages of hypotheticals. That's why we have the rule book. Everything's hypothetical. So John Bodenhamer didn't want to answer the question because the answer was yes. If he just stopped it, it would have been DQ'd. So I don't understand how anybody can consider stopping the ball or deflecting it worse than hitting the ball, hitting a moving ball. They should all be the same. They should all carry the same penalty. Uh, I can't imagine a case where a guy would accidentally hit his own moving ball like on a putt like that. But, uh, you know, there's a difference between breaking a rule and breaking a rule intentionally. When you break a rule intentionally, that's basically the definition of cheating, and that's what Phil did. So they didn't DQ him. I think what happened was the USGA thought, well, he's had, he's been honest before about the greens and the setup at Shinnecock in 2004 where maybe we cost him that open. He's mad that we lost the greens again Saturday, even though we promised we wouldn't. And I think they felt partially responsible for his tantrum, and they 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 worked like heck to try to find a, a way to not disqualify him and keep him in. And they found this rule fourteen five, it was a very narrow interpretation. But to me, it rule one point two, even though there's that that uh, that clause, uh, the. Altering the course of the ball should override everything, and that's and that's case closed. If Phil had really been smart, you know, it's the thing. If they disqualify him right afterwards, when he's in there signing his card, and they tell him, uh, you broke a rule one, two, you're disqualified, he'd probably go, yeah, okay, fine. And he wouldn't have come out, uh, Bob, he wouldn't have come out and told, made up this uh, cockamamie story about he thought he gained it. You know, he, he was a smart play. He did it on purpose to do this, this, and this. He just would have come out and said, yeah, I got disqualified. It was a dumb mistake on my part. And, you know, that would have, the controversy would have been really not much. I think the USJ thought by letting him play on, it would be less controversial because, you know, they've been taking hits every year. They just want to get out of the way, and they thought that might be less controversial. But, in fact, I think it was the opposite because uh, I think it's a clear, clear case he should have been disqualified. And, Really, about the only person I saw who came out in Nicholson's defense was was John Daly, who uh, did the same thing at the 99 U.S. Open at Pinehurst, where he just lost his mind and whacked the ball off the green because he was fed up. So when, when having John Daly as your backup is like, you know, Harvey Weinstein saying, oh, Bill Cosby's a great guy. You know, it doesn't really help you, kid. And there we have it, the final word <laughs> from Gary Van Cynical. I mean, Sickle. Uh, our president of the Golf Writers Association of America. And you can read more about his thoughts on this topic. Go to the Morning Read. It's one of the best, best, best online e-news we have. Morningread.com. You can sign up for free. It comes every morning into your mailbox. has some of the best writers in our business, including Gary. Check it out. Thank you so much, Mr. Van Sickle. Thanks, guys. You're listening to the Golf Insiders 96.9 The Game. More golf talk. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Swing in the house drives my wife up the wall. 
She shouldn't worry, I don't use a ball. It'd be good to just make parts. We're back, the Golf Insiders in the house, Holly G. And my special caddy this evening, Dr. Bob Winters, sports psychologist, golf psychologist to some of the top, top champions in our business, including two-time back-to-back U.S. Open champ, Brooks Kepka. Yes, Bob, you know Brooks really well. You've worked with him a long time. And um, I, I want to share something that he said in his presser before the tournament because okay. this was very interesting to me, and he was one of my top picks last week. He said, the only reason I'm here is to win. Does that sound like somebody we used to know? Absolutely. Tiger Woods? If I wasn't, I wouldn't have signed up. I think everyone here is trying to win. Everyone thinks they're going to win, and they should. When you come to a golf tournament, you're preparing to win. You're not going to be satisfied with second place. I don't think I've ever heard anybody say, man, I'm glad I finished second. So, you know, I'm looking forward to this week. I'm playing well. I feel like I always play well at U.S. Opens. I play very conservative, middle of the greens a lot of times, and I feel like major championships are where I shine. This was Wednesday. Yeah, this is Wednesday. And, and the, whole, the whole point that we've got with Brooks, I mean, I've been with Brooks since he was, what, 15? Uh, you know, just in southern Florida, and he was getting ready to uh, go and get ready for colleges, you know, to really look at him. And work with him as a junior. He would come up here to Orlando to, you know, the Ledbetter Academy where I'm the resident sports psychologist, world teaching headquarters, along with so many other different things that I do. And I met Brooks. I met his mother, Denise. Uh, I met his younger brother, Chase. And what you got from those early meetings was you had somebody who really wanted to win. He was a hungry, hungry man. And people always ask me, who's the toughest person, young student that you've had to work with. And I usually say it's the person who's not that motivated. They're not that hungry because how do you motivate someone whose refrigerator has always been full? All right. So Brooks has always had sort of what this we call this empty refrigerator. He's always hungry. He always wanted to win. Even when he went to Florida State, his coach, Trey Jones, and all of the assistants said, Listen, Dr. Bob, this guy's really special. He's somebody that's going to be great. So greatness was sort of expected of him at a very early age. And one of the things I had to do with him at a very early age was create this mental discipline, emotional composure. And I told him one time, I said, you know, everyone wants to win. But in order to be a great winner, you play to win, but you refuse to lose. And that is really the hallmark of one Brooks Kepka. He plays to win, and he hates to lose. Show me, and it was Vince Lombardi that said this years ago, show me a, a really good loser, and I'll show you somebody I don't want to coach because that just person is a loser. And Brooks Kepka sees himself as a winner. He wants to win everything. He's competitive in everything that he does, and it's almost every great major champion. They, they love the competition. They love the thrill of winning. And as Martina Navratilova said so many years ago, she said, if it's just for the winning, it's just for the, the, the quest of winning, it happens so very rarely. But you've got to love everything. You've got to love the toil. You've got to love the striving. And that's really what Brooks has, has really done. He has loved the process of getting better each and every day. So 
that's really, it was, you know, those roots, those foundations of emotional and mental toughness were started with him a long time ago. He was asked a question uh, after his round on Saturday. How hard is it to sort of discipline yourself to play the kind of golf you're going to have to play likely again for 18 more holes tomorrow as opposed to what you do week in and week out? And this was, of course, after everybody's coming off this brutal round Saturday afternoon. He said, I enjoy it. And this one I thought was really interesting. He said, I enjoy firing away, away from pins and having to be conservative sometimes and just finding a way to get through it. I mean, my track record is pretty good in U.S. Opens. I feel like the harder the golf course, the better. It's already going to eliminate so many guys. Some guys get down on themselves. You can eliminate them pretty much right away. You can't get frustrated. You just got to keep plugging away. I think that's why I've done so well. Very interesting the way his mind Well, he's works. really been influenced by a lot of people, hopefully myself, but also one Jack Nicklaus and Tiger Woods. Jack Nicklaus told me one time when I was the mental game consultant for his Golden Bear Tour in South Florida, that mini tour, developmental tour. He told me one time, he said, Bob, he goes, it isn't the Thursday and Friday rounds, you know, that I... I, do, I have more trouble with the Thursday and Friday. The Saturday and Sunday, no, I love the Saturday and Sunday because that's when my juices get flowing. That's when the real mental game kicks in, and that's what I love. I love the competition. I love the adrenaline. I love all of that. So when you hear Jack Nicklaus, Tiger Woods, and they start talking about that, what they realize is that the people who go out to play golf, not win a major championship, I'm talking about playing golf, Beating the golf course, however it's set up, are usually the people who are hoisting the U.S. Open trophy, the Claret Jug, the Masters trophy, putting on the green jacket. That's what separates the winners from the wannabes because they go out and play golf and beat the golf course versus saying, oh, I have to win a major championship. Absolutely. And uh, I think this is just the beginning. He you know, feels that he flies a little bit under the radar. He was flying under the radar even before the tournament started as the U.S. Open champion, which I found remarkable given how great he had been playing the last, you know, eight tournaments since he's come out from the wrist injury. And I, you know, I think he's been frustrated that he hasn't won more. And I think we're going to start to see a lot more from him. Well, what I have seen from him, especially in the last two to three years, is his putting. He's improved his ability to make clutch putts. It's one thing to make putts, okay, on Thursday, Friday. Coming down the stretch on Sunday to make those five, six, ten-footers for par, sometimes even bogey. He made a couple for great bogeys coming down the stretch to keep him in it. That's the difference now, getting the ball in the hole. That's going to be fun to watch him. And he's teeing it up this week at the Traveler, so we're going to get to see a lot more Brooks Kepka. And uh, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to the Golf Insiders. This hour is flying by as we talk about the U.S. Open at Shinnecock Hills. We'll be right back. Well, I don't want to take all the credit for their talent, but uh, first I had to teach them to play golf. Then I had to teach them to sing. And then I taught them to play various instruments, none of which they do very well. I want my dream. Yeah, yeah, really not so lean and mean. I got good We're back right. at Golf Insiders. In the house, Holly G. And my very special caddy, 
Dr. Bob Winters from the David Ledbetter Academy. A very expensive caddy for oh, you. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'll, I'll put you on the clock. Three minutes of, of mental advice, Dr. Bob. It would cost me a fortune. Well, there you go. Oh, my goodness. Well, um, our next Golf Insider, this hour's flying by. Uh, so much to talk about to wrap up the U.S. Open, but he was one of the busiest guys in the press room. And, uh, you know, you got to go to a, a real New York reporter especially when you got the U.S. Open at Shinnecock Hills. And I welcome for the first time Mark Canizaro, the sports columnist for the New York Post to the Golf Insiders. Hey, Mark. Holly, how you doing? Awesome. I got a little bit of a cold. I think it was you know that frosty press room, or maybe I ate too many Klondikes. I'm not sure. What do you think? That's, I think it's probably a combo platter of both. They definitely were feeding us well. Um, well, we've uh, 45 minutes of talking about either Brooks or Phil, so maybe I'll flip the coin and you can decide which topic you want to start with, or just maybe your overall impressions, uh, having covered you know, all the Opens in the New York area, Shinnecock, Bethpage, Wingfoot. How does this one play out? Obviously, history-making with Brooks going back-to-back. Your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think, Holly, the, the good, I think the best thing that happened is that this Open will not be remembered for Phil's shenanigans on Saturday because of the fact that Brooks, you know, ha- you know, made a little piece of history with the back-to-back first time since '89 with with Curtis Strange. So in that manner, um, you, you wanted it. You, you want you always want these things to be remembered for what took place on the golf course with the golf clubs, so to speak. You know, I always felt bad for Retief Goosen, who won the '04 Open at uh, at at Chinnacock. Because that 04 Open was remembered much more for the USGA losing the golf course and, and, and screwing up that seventh green and then watering it during competition, which frankly I think tainted the competition and compromised the whole situation. And, you know, so I didn't want this Open to be remembered for Phil's, you know, brain freeze, uh, for lack of a better moment. It really is his meltdown moment, is what it was on Saturday. Um, so. You know, we got the right winner, which was good. You know, he played well. He played, you know, listen, he played better than anybody else on the weekend. I frankly, I'm shocked that Dustin Johnson didn't win because I, when I walked out of there on, th- on Friday night, I didn't think anybody was going to catch him, even though there was a lot of difficult golf to play. He just seemed, you know, bulletproof, didn't he? Yep. But I think so, one thing we've learned is Shinnecock is full of surprises, and at the end of the day, you know, the the golf course wins. And I also think, you know, I think that. A little bit, the, the course took some shots, and I don't think it should. You know, want to really make it clear that every player came off the course uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, saying how much, you know, they thought the course was in great shape, set up well. And, you know, again, I, I don't know what the USGA was thinking on Saturday because we all know it blows out there all the time, 10 miles, yeah, go, 15, go, go, 20 yeah. miles. Go figure a Lynx course near the ocean. Uh, and built built on sand. It's going to yeah. be dry. It's going to be fast. It's going to be quick. What What am I missing? Yeah, well, the USGA obviously can't get out of its own way, let's be honest. I mean, that's just, you know, I, I frankly, coming into the week, figured that if they were going to err, they are going to err on the side of caution, and maybe there'd be a, a lower score there than we might, might have predicted because they would have made sure it was ultra-uber playable because of what happened in 04 and for them to even let it get close to the edge on, on that Saturday was just, to me, was just irresponsible. And, uh, you know, and they, they were, you know, they were embarrassed by it, you know, they, and, and, you know, Mike Davis afterwards said, look, we, you know, we, 
essentially get caught with our pants down with the wind, you know, which is silly. I mean, how do you, how do you, you know, how do you mess that up? You know, I mean, there's going to be wind. So, uh, but you know, at the end of the day, it was, it was, you know, I mean, the way they had the course set up on Sunday, frankly, is exactly the way it should have been set up on Saturday. Agree. You know, and if you look at, listen, I know Augusta and the Masters is a totally different deal, but look what, look what, the, what Augusta does. I mean, every one of those pins on Saturdays and they're in bowls to create the roars and the action and set up a, you know, a crazy good Sunday. You know, in fact, instead, the USG almost ruined its golf tournament by going the opposite direction. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Mark, we, we're running a little long uh, tonight. I'd love to have you back on. Maybe we can talk a little bit more next week. Are, are you heading to the Travelers? I'm not doing Travelers. The next thing I'll do is the British Open. So you know, if you want to give me a buzz before then, we can talk British All right. uh, in a few weeks. You know, we would love any, to. Anytime. I may see you over there myself for my first one. Thanks. Oh, awesome. It's, it's the best. Thanks. Mark Canisaro from the New York Post. Dr. Bob, we've just got a couple minutes left. This has been a fast hour. Um, I have to say I felt badly for Brooks over his 2017 win because, one, you know, I don't think he really got the credit he was due when he shot 16 under because the wind didn't blow at Aaron Hills on Sunday, but he played amazing golf. But also then he had the wrist injury. He was out for three, four months. And I don't feel that he really got, you know, to really enjoy the U.S. Open trophy. Now he's come back and won it on one of the most iconic, toughest golf courses, uh, you know, that we have. And to me, what, what uh, you know, divine justice. You know, well, the biggest thing, if you take a look at Brooks' demeanor, he's very, you know, sober sides, very serious, very matter-of-fact, even wears all gray. Now, what has been building up all year? You know, we've had Justin Thomas, Dustin Johnson, Tiger Woods back in the mix. And we've had all of this sort of hoopla of really popular players. So Brooks sort of gets, you know, moved back to, the, you know, the backside. And I guarantee you that sort of irks him a little bit. And that really drives his motivation to say, you know what? Yeah, I'll tell you what. I won't say anything, but I'll let my clubs do the talking. And that's really the ultimate mark of any champion golfer. You don't have to do a lot of smack talk. You let your clubs do the talking. And at the end of the day and at the end of the year, 2017 and 2018, U.S. Open champion Brooks Kepka. I'll tell you what, really happy for him, happy for his whole team, happy for his mom, his dad. You know, he was given Bob Kepka, you know, a couple of uh, Father's Day trophies, you know, the U.S. Open. That's a pretty good gift. So, Do we put him on the top of our list for the uh, Open Championship, which well, he, is he's our next major? He's definitely a major player, but you're going to have Tiger. You're going to have Phil coming back, trying to, you know, to rectify this situation. DJ, uh, Jordan Spieth, you got, you got them all up there. But I'll tell you what, one of the toughest things to do is to predict a golf champion. Isn't that the so truth? So many variables. So deep, as we saw this weekend. And... Uh, We've had an unbelievable U.S. Open. It was a great time at Chinnacock Hills. Holly G., we got a tea time. We got to go. We love you. Bye-bye.